Welcome back. Episode 12 of the Four Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Obi. We have a hell of an episode today. Once again, with me is a guy I've gotten to know over the past couple of years uh, through my older brother, Bernard, both football junkies. So we're going to try to, you know, break the game down and talk football. You know what I mean? Without further ado is the boy AC, Austin Contreras. Thank you for spending some time today, bro. Mike, how you doing, man? Thank you for having me. Thank you for playing, man. Appreciate it. Um, so let's go ahead and get right into it. You know, as I talked about, you're also a former football player like myself. Uh, what got you into playing ball? And just talk about your football career for a bit. Well, I remember growing up, my family, you know, on Sundays, the whole world would stop and everybody would sit down and watch the Dallas Cowboys. And that was back in the 90s with the Dallas Cowboys in their heyday. They had Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin. Uh, prime time was on the on the field. So you couldn't help but get caught up in that type of hype. And I remember looking at that team and looking at those players and every part of me wanted to be like those men that I would watch every Sunday. Uh, my dad would get fired up when the Cowboys were, you know, doing bad. And uh, it stuck with him. I remember he would always be around the house and he'd be in a bad mood if the Cowboys had lost that week. And if the Cowboys had won, they'd be in a great mood. So uh, one of the big things that happened with me is I was always in the front yard playing football with my friends, but I was never allowed to play organized football until I reached the seventh grade. It was like one of those household rules. Like, and looking back on it, I think that was a good rule because it kept me from burning out yeah. and it, my body developed and matured before I got into, you know, smacking people around. So, you know, in the future, that might be something I do with my family. But um, yeah, so it was just this admiration for the game that turned into this anxiousness to play. So when I finally got to middle school and I got the chance to strap it up, it, it was just, I took every advantage of the opportunity that I possibly could. That's great. And it's funny that you mentioned, so I also started football late too. I didn't start until I was, I think, 11 or 12. Um, and part of it, the same reason, you know, my parents, um, you know, first off, weren't from America. So they got, you know, in, introduced to football really only through my older brother, who Bernard. And um, that was what drove me to sort of like the game. I mean, he started playing it and I was like, oh man, big bro's playing it. I got to see what this is about. And uh, the first football game I ever watched was the 05 Super Bowl. Uh, that was uh, Pittsburgh versus Seattle. Um, and I just remember, man, the Pittsburgh defense and them hitting and like, it was such a big occasion. Everybody used to talk about it. And that kind of got me into football. And like, I always felt that, you know, that's one thing that helped me to kind of stay away from injury and not, you know, have too many ailments. Uh, when I got older, uh, was the fact that I started playing football late, you know, a lot of guys who I knew who started playing at like six and seven, first off their bodies gave out on them and they sort of, peaked early so to speak so I think that helped me kind of be a better football player because by the time I started playing ball I was already developed as a as a young kid I mean as much as I could have been and my, my body wasn't always sore uh, so I could also stay away from injury so it's funny you say that and you know what it's funny because I remember the big thing is obviously like to all the points that you just made physically you weren't worn down but I think even for me from what I noticed is the mental part of it. I was not tired of the game when I finally got the opportunity to play. And later, you know, my junior, senior, and even collegiate years, I was just ready to go out there and perform every time. And it was just it was fun to me. Yeah. Never burnt yeah. out from the game. No, yeah, I agree. Uh, same here. Like, again, yeah, like you said, you know, burnout from, like, playing the game. Like, to me, it was like, how, how – how does one get burnt off and playing football? This is a game. It's supposed to be fun. But then you look at it, and um, it took really kind of me understanding that for guys who start off at like seven, six years old, and you play until you're 18, you've already played a 12-year football career, and you haven't even gone and played in college and played in the NFL. I mean, a lot of guys, like the average football career, I think, in the NFL is like seven years. So think about that. You've been playing all this time. No wonder, you know, you just go, you just get tired of the banging and the bruising you're always hurt you're always sore and so yeah definitely by the time I finished playing I still was like I had some competitor left like I'm like man what is this like it's almost like a withdrawal from like a, a drug from the so to speak that adrenaline rush and this that camaraderie of being in the locker room um but talk about you know 
what got you playing defensive back as you did and um you know what led you play in that position and also uh your progress as far as getting into high school playing and then getting to college well i'm gonna take a step even further back and tell you that i i I didn't even play defensive back uh, in middle school or in high school. Uh, I didn't know what position I was going to play. And in middle school, I was in a middle school, a brand new middle school, and they had to combine the seventh and eighth grade team. So pretty much all the seventh graders were on the bench. Mm. But I managed to break the starting lineup as uh, a quarterback. And I didn't even want to try out for the position. My dad just made me promises like, hey, just go try it. And I was like, well, I, I kind of want to play running back. I want to play receiver. He said, just promise me you're going to try it one day. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll make a promise to you, Dad. I went out there, and, uh, you know, to me, I wasn't doing anything special. I was just tossing the ball around like I did my whole life. And um, I was named the starter, and I never looked back. Um, I got to high school. My freshman team won the district championship. We went 9-1 and one that year. Uh, and then my sophomore year, I was bumped up to varsity as the starting quarterback. And my first game was against Midland Lee. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I actually didn't start that game because I had gotten hurt in the preseason. I had sprained my midfoot at practice. Um, you know, a little nervousness probably got the best of me at practice. I tried to make more of a play, ended up mm -hmm. almost breaking my foot. But I stepped in the, in the third quarter after halftime, and uh, I remember tossing two touchdown passes against the Midland Lee Rebels mm -hmm. as a sophomore. Yeah. And I was like, you know, there ain't no turning back now. Ain't nothing right. going to stop me. Uh, it helped that I had a running back by the name of John Lane. He uh, went to UTEP and uh, also I think it was South Dakota State as a running back. Probably one of the best athletes I've ever seen. So a lot of my playing career that year was turning around and handing the ball to John. <laughs> had a good workout. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, my junior and senior year, uh, I was able to – play a much more active role in the offense and uh, really showcase my talent. Um, and I believed I was a good athlete and that was until I got to college and, and we'll get more into that later. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I ended up playing multiple positions and my senior year, I actually, my junior year, I started at safety a little bit. And then my uh, June, my, my senior year, I was also the starting middle linebacker. So I played middle linebacker, quarterback. I also returned punts, returned kicks, uh, blocked field goals off the edge. So I never came off the field. And, you know, that was 6A ball back in the day. So it, it was a fun experience. But when I got to college, I quickly realized that I didn't have the physical gifts that quarterbacks need. I'm not 6'2". I'm about 5'10". Um, a hell of an arm, but I also had a guy by the name of Trevor Vitito in front of me and Trevor broke every single school record there was at UTEP. Mm. So uh, I kind of figured that it was in my best interest to find other ways on the field. And that was by playing defensive back and special teams. So, talk about, so you were a guy who played multiple positions. Did that help you, you know, translate your game better or learn the game faster? You know, cause there are some guys where coaching staffs look at them and they say, we don't know what this guy is. So they put him at everything. Right. Or they just say, oh, we don't know. So he doesn't get his chance. Do you feel learning multiple positions helps a player develop their game? Absolutely. Let me tell you this. If I'm a defensive back coach at the college level, mm -hmm. where, which I was, I was a graduate assistant at UTEP. When I was recruiting a kid, if he was a great DB and we talked to the coaches, we'd say, how good of an athlete is he? Can he play running back? Can he play quarterback? Can he catch the ball? And the coaches would be, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then our next question was, well, why didn't he? Like, if you could do it, <laughs> why didn't he do it? You know, usually at the high school level, the best athletes on the field are going to – they're going to have the ball in their hand. They're going to be playing offense at some degree, and then they're probably going to help out on defense when you need some help. If you need help covering a guy, they're going to step in. If they need help tackling a big-time running back, they're going to step in. So the more versatility that a high school athlete has, by far their stock goes up because there is no way to say you're capable of doing something – unless you're actually doing it on film. Yeah, that's, that's well said, well said. So now let's get into your college career. Um, you get to UTEP, like you said, you look at it, you look at the landscape, quarterback's not for you, you end up playing defensive back. Talk about what that was like playing college football. Well, getting to college had been my 
dreams and aspirations the whole time I was in high school. And I remember I had a lot of college offers, mostly at the Division Two and One AA uh, level. I didn't have any Division One offers. I had two things that were going for me. The first one was uh, Texas Tech. Mm. And we had a coach by the name of Coach Brown who was recruiting me. But he told me, he's like, Austin, we don't have any scholarships for you. I'm sorry. You can come on and be a preferred walk-on and join the Big 12 as a Red Raider at Texas Tech. Right. And I said, you know what, Coach? Um, that's what I want to do. And I remember that spring, he was playing basketball, just a little pickup game, and he ended up having a heart attack and died. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, right there on the court. And I felt for him. I felt for his family. And I also knew that all my dreams and aspirations of walking out to Texas Tech went up in smoke when he passed away. Yeah. So I remember one day I used to get a bunch of letters from every school in the country and the letters stopped coming. Mm. And mostly because my senior year, we only won two football games. But I remember I got a letter from UTEP in particular and it said, Austin, we regret to inform you that we are no longer recruiting you. Our needs have been met. Mm. And we just wanted to let you know where we stand. Thank you for your time. But, you know, we're not looking for you here. And I remember being down on myself outside of my house by my mailbox for about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And then I remember I puffed my chest up and I was like, that's the school I want to go to. That's the school I want to play for. Because everybody fell off. And UTEP was the only school that straight up said no. Yeah. And to some degree, I respected them for that. And I put it in my mind that that's the school I was going to play for. That's the school I was going to prove wrong. And fortunately, I think I did that. That's my legacy. No, it's great because that's the one school that at least had the boss to tell you, listen, we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to skirt the issue. We're not looking for you anymore. And, you know, it fueled your fire to say, fuck everything i'm gonna go play for those guys like you know and i'm gonna show that you made a mistake trying to think that you didn't need me you know and and that's the thing it's all mindset with athletes you know i tell young people all the time like you can decide to say oh i'm not getting enough playing time i'm gonna pout about it or i'm gonna complain or whatever or you could say okay i'll show them i'll show whomever it is i deserve to be on this football field i deserve to be given a shot and you you know you go out and you attack the goals and yeah, it's great to hear, you know? So you get to UTEP, you meet my older brother, Bernard, you're by far one of the few people who I think he's formed a serious bond with um, just y'all's friendship. You know, I met you through him when I went and visited him in El Paso and just you and your family, you know, taking me in and just were like, Hey, any family of Volbys is a family of ours. And uh, just talk about you and Bernard's relationship. Uh, I mean, obviously you guys are teammates, but, you know, not all teammates are cool. So what was it about him and yourself that kind of led to y'all's bond? So it was kind of funny. While I was actually playing at UTEP, I didn't make very many close relationships either. Um, a lot of that was because I walked onto the team mm. and a lot of guys viewed me as you shouldn't even be here. You're here to, like, just take our spots and just be pretty much a dream killer. And you don't really have any athletic ability compared to the average Division I uh, athlete anyway. You're just going to be a practice player. Mm. So I got a lot of those comments thrown at me by a lot of different players on the team. And, you know, a lot of it was even racially based because, you know, I'm one of the few brown guys on the team, <laughs> you know. So when I was there, I struggled to make a lot of relationships myself. But I remember Bernard was always he was always cool with me. He always treated me just like any other human being. And I respected that about him. And to be quite honest with you, when we would go and we would travel because I finally made the travel squad and, and that was a different story, too. But. I remember we're traveling and me and Bernard would go out before warmups and we would toss the ball for about 30 minutes, you know, just having fun, trying to make miraculous catches, kind of like you do when you're kids <laughs> on the front yard. And really it just became like a little bonding moment for us. And um, I remember that's, that was really the extent of it. It wasn't until I had graduated from playing football and I was a graduate assistant 
And Bernard had used up all of his eligibility because he started as a true freshman. Mm. So we were from completely different ends of the spectrum in terms of athletic athleticism and our athletic achievements. Mm. But I remember he came into the office as a student assistant mm. and um, we really bonded in that office. Let me tell you, uh, as a graduate assistant, it's not a glamorous life. You have to put up with a lot of stuff, you know, going and getting the coaches lunch and staying up late when nobody else wants to. And we bonded in those moments of, damn, we're really the only ones in here in this office working. Everybody else is at home asleep. They're with their kids or with their family. And we're here doing the grunt work. So we really, really built up a relationship. And I remember when it was all said and done, Bernard moved back to Houston for a few years. Yeah. And I remember he had told me that he was really lacking uh, the kind of connections to friends in Houston like he had in El Paso. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, hey, man, you know, move back down here. And he's like, you think so? Hell yeah. <laughs> so more credit to him. He picks up out of nowhere and just brings his ass down to El Paso, Texas. And you know, a lot of people say El Paso isn't that great of a town. Bernard loves it. I love it. I think it's one of the greatest places, one of the greatest cities in the United States. And, um, you know, he's come down here and he's made it work for himself. He's a successful man in his career. And more importantly, like he's my friend. And every time we have time off at the same time, we're with each other. I see him at least once a week, minimum. And if he has multiple days off, we're hanging out. And I, I'm proud to call him my friend. For sure. And I'm proud to call him my big bro. I mean, again, I looked up to him, you know, ever since I, you know, could understand life and everything. Um, you know, just seeing his example and the way he carries himself, you know, again, that was a great example for me, him and my old and my dad as well. And, um, you know, I know when he decides to befriend somebody, that's a good person because I know his character. And so I already knew when he used to talk about you, like, you know, down here in Houston, he was like, oh, yeah, my boy AC. Oh, my boy AC. I'm like, okay, that's, you know, a real friend. And then, you know, he moves back to El Paso because he told, he told me what you just informed me of. Like, man, I ain't really feeling Houston, yada, yada, yada. I might move back to El Paso. I'm like, hey, do what you got to do. But if you move back, I'm going to come visit you, right? Sure enough, I come, what, two summers ago, and he's just like, hey, we're going to go meet the AC. We're going to go meet his family. They're going to bring us lunch. I'm like, dang, like that? And uh, sure enough, you know, I, just, I remember meeting you, meeting your mom, meeting your dad. And I was like, I see it. You know, just both of all of us come from the same close-knit families, you know, good backgrounds, good heads on our shoulders. And, you know, it, the bond is just, it's, it's clear to see why you guys are friends. And, you know, I think y'all both have rubbed off on each other. Um, definitely. You guys set a good example, you know, you guys being older than myself and me being able to look up to you guys, you guys mentoring me, teaching me the ropes and everything. So it's great to see just to, to say I don't want I don't want to pretend like it's been perfect. He and I have had some dog fights. You I know mean, what I'm saying? It is, what it is man. You know, yeah, it's just like brothers. You right. know, you grow up with brothers, you're going to have a few fights, but you're always going to realize that's your brother. And just because you guys are having a disagreement doesn't mean anybody else can step in. That's still your bro. You're going to have his back at the end of the day. Yeah. So, you know, being able to get through those spots also has really enhanced our relationship just brother to brother. Yeah. I mean, again, it's not everything in life is perfect. It is, you know, not even the closest of friends, the closest of friends even have their time where they bicker, where they disagree. That's all okay. The the true testament to see whether a bond is, you know, as tight as it is, is what happens in those times of adversity. You guys have had your times where, you know, you guys didn't agree. You guys might have had to fight it out, whatever the case may be. But you guys are still boys at the end of the day. You guys haven't lost sight of that. So, you know, moving on, though, after college and after playing at UTEP, you know, you got into coaching. So talk about what got you first off into deciding to be a coach and what it's been like that experience. Well, I know that as a player, my biggest priority was maximizing my potential because there were a lot of guys around me that had much more potential than me, much more, uh, you know, they were streamlined towards success. And for some reason, one way or another, they didn't make it. And to be quite honest with you, the only reason I got to play was because I outlasted everybody and because I maximized my potential. And when I was done playing, 
the only thing I could think of was how can I give back and how can I make this team, the minor team, which at the time that's where I was coaching the best possible team from what I saw as still playing the game of football, but just at a different position. So now you graduate from playing defensive back quarterback, whatever it might be Mm -hmm. to your job is to get these guys ready to physically perform. Mm -hmm. And I really embraced that competitive drive that coaches have when you go out there for 10, 12, whatever, however many games you have a year. And it's intense. I'm telling you, anybody who has coached football at any level from <laughs> PB to the pros, <laughs> fall in love with the adrenaline that you feel on game day. Absolutely. And um, I loved it. I loved seeing the people and the men that I was coaching develop. And uh, that's, what brought, that's what drew me to the game. Yeah, I was a guy who, you know, was big on the mental side of football, um, especially when I played. I mean, that was what I always felt was set me apart from other guys who are my contemporaries. There were guys my size. I was six foot. Guys my weight who weighed more than me. I mean, I was 255. So I had to look at, you know, me and say, how can I set myself apart? And it was through watching film, through understanding the psychology of the game. And so naturally, I always thought like a coach. You know, I played nose. And, you know, my my coach has always instilled in me that the nose is basically the quarterback outside of the Mike linebacker. He was always the quarterback of the defense from the standpoint, the success and the failure of the defense in a 3-4 starts and ends with him. If he doesn't do his job, then the entire defense is behind And so I understood that. And I'd always have to communicate to different guys, you know, whether on the field or off the field, you know, uh, making sure that a guy's spirits was up, making sure that a guy was focused, the guy who wasn't getting any play at time. Those guys, I think a lot of times people don't understand how important they are. I understood that because I was a guy who wasn't always a starter. I was a guy who, you know, sometimes was a second string. Sometimes I wasn't playing a whole lot. Sometimes I was playing whole games. So I understood every part of a football player, every part of a football team, every position. And so I thought about getting into coaching when I got out because um, of what my coaches instilled in me and how I always saw the game. I was like, I could do this. Like this stuff, like first off, I'm built for it. I'm built like it and I think like it. And so just, you know, understanding and definitely, like you said, coaches are probably – the most competitive people to ever walk this planet because you have to be your job, your livelihood is based off of winning and losing largely. I mean, and so you have to always be on your P's and Q's. You have to always be able to be ahead of the curve rather than behind. Cause the second you get comfortable, the second you let up, you're getting passed up. But moving on though, Talk about your your philosophy when it comes to coaching. So right now you're a defensive coordinator. So talk about how you think the game, how you approach the game, whether it's through building a team, constructing a defense, and calling the game. So um, obviously I've learned a lot throughout my years. I've had some great mentorship from guys like Andre Patterson, Mm -hmm. Robert Rodriguez, you know, Al Simmons and Tom Williams, just to name a few. Those are some of the guys that have made the biggest influences on my coaching philosophy. When I first got into coaching, I was an assistant coach. I was a safeties coach at Canotillo High School. That's this small, you know, 4A school. Well, now it's 5A school in uh, West El Paso. And it's very, you know, uh, blue collar. Our athletes are not very big at all. We have like five foot four little munchkin outside linebackers. All All our defensive linemen were like five, eight, maybe, you know, two thirty little, you know, gremlins out there trying to work. Mm -hmm. But we managed to make it all the way to the state semifinals. And, you know, those kids just watching them work and really understanding that at the high school level, the talent that you have every year changes. So as a coach, you have to adapt to that change. You have to fit your players. You can't play a four-man front every year. You can't play a three-man front every year. You can't make a square hole, I mean, a square uh, peg fit into a circular hole. You got to make it work with the talent that you got and maximizing those players and putting them in position to be successful. So when I became a coordinator... Uh, I remember when I first started, I brought the 3-4 defense, and that's really what our bread and butter was. That's what had taken 
the Canotillo team with a bunch of little munchkins to the state semifinals. And I thought I had figured it out. I thought I knew, you know, why didn't everybody just do this? Yeah. Well, it's funny because once you're put in that position of a coordinator, you learn how different each situation is. Absolutely. And, you know, we didn't have the guys that could really play the three-man front the way we wanted to. We had a, two really good-looking linebackers, but one of them couldn't tackle in space. Mm. So, you know, we're thinking, how do we make this team better? And what we figured out was that linebacker that couldn't tackle in, in space, let's go put his hand in the dirt and let's make it a four-man front and let's fit the X's and O's to fit our team. Mm. So I think the biggest thing with my coaching philosophy in terms of just a coach's thinking is always being able to adapt, being very fluid with the talent that you have. Absolutely. And that was one of the that was one of the biggest lessons I learned even while being a player is, you know, the coaches who said, this is my scheme and we're going to run it come hell or high water. They didn't last very long. Or even if you did have success, you, you were capped at a certain point, right? You, instead of being a team that makes it to the state semifinals with the right scheme, you're getting knocked out in the first round every year because you don't want to adapt to the player that you have. I've, I've never understood okay, we have big, huge linemen who can take up two gaps, but we're going to run a, uh, an attacking 3-4 or attacking front. Or we have fast linebackers, but we're only going to use two of them. Like, you know, just different things like that. I've always kind of said the best coaches take the talent that they have and they use that talent in the right way, in the right manner, to deploy the right assets in the right manners. And that's the difference between – State championship versus state semifinalists, state, you know, first round versus out the playoffs is those teams that are able to think the game bigger than just X's and O's. You have to think of the mentality. You have to think of, okay, what is this guy good at? What is this guy not good at? If he's not good at tackling in space, if he's not very big, don't put him in situations where he's going to be compromised because then – like fair or not, people are going to look at him and say, oh, it's his fault. Or he's going to, you know, question the credibility of coaching, which especially these days, young athletes, they're being fed a whole lot of different information. A lot of different film is available to them. So if you're not on your shit, you lose your credibility and you lose your locker room very quickly. You know? Absolutely. I think, you know, two main points that you hit on was, the mentality of a player and a player, the players are only going to be as good as they buy into being. So you Absolutely. have to be a coach. You're a coach, but you're also a salesman. Yeah. And what you're selling is your defense and your philosophy and your mentality. These players have to love each other and they have to love you to perform. And at the same time, they have to respect you mm -hmm. because I know a lot of coaches that are well loved, but in tough situations, there's not enough respect there for the players to buy in so really establishing those factors is huge and then going back to you know just getting athletes on the field you know one of the best practices that we do as a coaching staff is at the conclusion of every year we look at all the returning players and as a defensive staff we rank them who are our best guys and as, and as we go through it we put our best 11 players and everybody votes confidentially. So there's no like swaying votes. There's no coaches standing on the, you know, the D line coach, of course, he thinks he has the best nose guard or the best three technique in the country. Right. Yeah. But everybody votes individually. And then you get those 11 players that everybody's voted on as being the best athletes for the defense. And then you say, okay, out of these 11 players, we have three linemen. We have four linebackers. And we happen to have four DBs. Well, what defense does it look like we're going to play? Probably going to play the 3-4. Yeah. Whereas if those numbers were three, you know, defensive linemen, three linebackers, and we have five DBs, well, maybe we're playing the 3-3 three, three stack, yeah. you know? So it's just different depending on what talent we have. And we'll do that periodically throughout the offseason, especially in high school. You know, a kid might look one way in December when the season's over, and then come July or August at the beginning of the year, the kid's shot up six inches in height and he's gained <laughs> 30 pounds. So basically that's what we do is we evaluate our talents and we figure out what positions need to be on the field and we make it happen. Yeah, that's great. You know, I mean, it's funny that, you know, the way you're breaking it down. Um, I remember when I was playing, we 
kind of were trying to find our identity as a as a defense and as a staff. I mean, we had a lot of young guys, so like a lot of sophomores when I first started playing varsity ball. And, you know, we had a we had a group of guys where um we we weren't the biggest athletes, but we we were athletic as far as, you know, game speed, as far as quickness, athleticism. And, you know, Justin talking about how it takes a coaching staff being able to look at the talent they have and see, okay, what fits these guys the best? And if you do that, you get the buy-in. I remember when we initially started off with our with our scheme, it was like, eh, we're not sure if this is going to work. And then as we evolved as players, as our coaches evolved, you know, just in them learning the game, because we had a young staff, especially on the defensive uh, side of the ball, we all kind of were learning the game together and we were able to mesh and to the point where – we found something that worked from our coaches and us as players understood it to the point where we honestly got to a point by our senior years. We were like, Hey coach, if we see this, can we do this? Like we can coach ourselves. We knew this right. inside and out. And it's just funny how you talk about, you have to understand the players that you're coaching. And in turn, the players have to understand what the coaches are trying to get them to do as well. You know, if you have that sort of cohesion, that's what creates success. If the coach prevents a, presents a scheme that players don't buy into, or if the players are questioning the coach, it's not going to work, you know. And that's where you know teams fail. Honestly, definitely a balancing act to say the least. As a coach, you have to balance, you know, pleasing the players and also being an authority figure for these players as well. And because at the end of the day, we're all playing this game to have fun. We all want to win games. But there's also an element of accountability on the football team. And it comes from both the players and the coaches. Yeah. So now. Talk about in college what it's like to be recruiting players, you know, because I know young players, high school players, we dealt with this a lot on our team. We had a lot of guys get recruited and play at the D1 level, but we also had guys who played D2, a couple guys played D3. Just talk about what the recruiting process is like from a college poaching staff. What is it that you guys look for in a player, and what are some red flags that you guys would say, yeah, we like this player, but eh, we can't get him or we can't take him? All right, well, you want to know the truth, or, or do you want me to uh, – how truthful do you want me to be on this podcast? 100% truthful. <laughs> One hundred. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you the coaching perspective and then I'm going to give you the recruiting trip perspective. OK. OK. So from a coaching standpoint, we always want to make sure that we're recruiting kids that we think can, number one, add talent to our program and number two, last in our program and can make it through their senior year while also being academically eligible. So we look into all those factors. Obviously, the first thing we're going to see is your highlight tape. So players, I think, you know, they're hiring a lot of recruiting uh, gurus out of high school, guys that push their stuff. But in reality, these players can do it themselves. Uh, Huddle has become more and more easy to use. These players can create their own highlights, and it's as easy as sending a link to their college coach. So talent and highlight films is probably the number one thing. Be persistent and push those uh, highlight tapes out. Now, I would recommend don't send it to the head coach of whatever football team you want to play for because that coach is busy. He's not watching recruiting film. The guys that are watching recruiting film are the position coaches and the GAs. So I would definitely send it to those guys and really hammer those guys hard to watch your film. Um So that's first and foremost. So you have talent, you have lasting in the program, you have academic success, and then, of course, you have character, where as my job as a GA was to dig up dirt on you. So I'm scrolling through your Twitter. I'm scrolling through your Insta. I'm scrolling through your (laughs) Facebook. I know who your homies are before you show up on your recruiting trip. I know your mom's name. I know your dad's name. I know your dog's name. I know all of that before you show up, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, if you manage to pass that test, your social media test, let me tell you, I've had guys talk about smoking weed and gangbanging on their Twitter. Can't have it. On their Twitter. 
And, you know, like, unfortunately, I was a GA. So when they, they would bring me into the office, they're like, AC, what's the report on this guy? And I would have to tell them, you know, coach, uh, I, I think this guy's a gangbanger, man. Like, he's talking about driving by and, you know, smoking weed and, you know, getting drunk all the time. So the coaches would be like, well, you know, let me see it. So I'd print out the timeline and I'd show them black and white. And they're like, yeah, this isn't a guy we want on our team. Wow. So, you know, social media can be a huge tool or it could be a major hindrance depending on how you use it. So if you have any young listeners out there talking about the recruiting process, stay on top of your social media. And less is more sometimes mm. because I'm going through – all your posts as a GA, I'm going through the replies. I'm sitting on the sidelines that I'm watching everything. Now, let's get to the fun part. Right. Pass all those exams, right? You pass the talent test. You pass all this stuff. You have the physical abilities. You have what we consider to be character, whatever. So we fly you out to the recruiting trip. And now what we do is we set you up with guys like me who – know the city and know how to show you a good time. Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to take you to, you know, you're obviously you're going to meet the coaches. You're going to do a physical evaluation, but when the sun goes down, I'm going to take you out to, you know, here in El Paso, that Cincinnati street, the bar scene, the club scene. Uh, I'm going to have anything that you want to have a good time. I'm going to allow you to have access to it within lo- the law. Let me put it like, you know what I mean? Within the law. Now, I even got to the point, I'm from El Paso. And when guys would come in, I would would have girls set up in different places. And I'm like, hey, let me tell you what. I'm I'm serious. This is is how how good I was. (laughs) I would say, hey, bring you and your girlfriends. I want you guys to be at this bar. I'm going to bring some recruits through. And I just want you, I just want you to be friendly with them. I just want you to show them a good time. You know, there's no expectations or anything of that nature, but you have to understand that these girls, they're also like, Oh my God, there's these great, good looking guys coming into a bar. They're great athletes. You know, they're not from El Paso. Most of these girls are, you know, the men they're seeing are exotic to them. Yes. They're, they're not the typical El Paso demographic, if you will. Yeah. So they, in their minds, have first crack at a guy that might go to the NFL. So it works out for everybody. Let me just say that my tactics might not be the greatest, but I had a 100% commitment rate. So these guys were coming into El Paso. They were having a great time, and they were signing their letter of commitment before they got on the plane to leave. So, you know, like – it is what it is, man. This is how college athletics works. And at the end of the day, you have to understand that whether you're a good athlete, a good football player, an 18-year-old teenage boy yeah. is going to act like an 18-year-old teenage boy. And th- those things are going to appeal to them. Absolutely. And I mind you, at this time, I was the same age as them. I was you know, 21, 22, 23 years old. So, But I had it set up that way. Yeah. I mean, again, it, it's, it's crazy because it just confirms, you know, all some of the misconceptions or some of the things that, you know, you hear in high school, right, for all the guys listening out there or for all the young ladies, you know. I know we used to think like, oh, nah, this college, or is it really like that as far as recruiting visits? And some of the, you know, some guys would come back, you know, because we had guys being recruited, they'd be like, okay, this place was fun or this place wasn't fun. Or we had access to this, we didn't have access to that, right? All those stories. And it's not, like you said, it's all within legal boundaries. It's not like people are out there doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. But it is the idea that as a recruiter, you're trying to sell the guy on your school and on the location. Because think about it, from a player's perspective, this guy is committing the next four years of his life to that locale, you know? Does he really want to go somewhere where he's going to be bored or if he doesn't feel like the program is going to be successful, you know? So, you know, he goes to visit those schools. By the time he's already looked into it and said, okay, I either do or I don't want to go here. Now it's just a matter of, okay, your job as a GA was to sell him. Like, look, you go here, you have access to this. Not only are you going to have access to a football team, which is what you came in to do, 
Yes, but you also have access to X, Y, and Z, all this extra stuff. So it's just cool to see. And one of my favorite parts to that is, and it happens with every athlete, is you come in on your recruiting trip, you have a great time, you know, it's all parties, it's all smoke and mirrors, and then you show up, and, you know, on day one, these coaches are, are on you. And they're ripping you. Yeah, and they're telling you how much you suck and all this <laughs> other stuff, you know? And it's like, yeah, I'm saying that was a recruiting trip. It's like, no, man, that was the recruiting trip. This is real life. Yes, very sober. So, you know, so again, if, you, if we have any young listeners out there that are in the recruiting process, I, I very, very much want you to be aware of the situation you're stepping into. And the recruiting trip is not going to be every day of the next four years for you. You got to be intelligent in deciphering the recruiting trip from the reality of the job, which is winning football games. Absolutely. And that, you know, again, yes, it's good to have fun and, you know, everybody should do so. I mean, that's part of college's experiences, but like you said, you should always look into getting and keeping your eye on the main thing, which is to do your job, play ball, and to be successful on the field, being successful on the field, first off, makes your experience in college better, makes you have a better time. And, you know, all the extra stuff kind of comes with it. You know, if you are on a team that is not winning, nobody wants to go to the football games. Nobody's going to have the respect for you. If you go out and you take care of business on the field, then you first off, carry yourself better, less stress, which means that you can have a better time just in general. So getting into our last points, a big topic of conversation these days is athlete compensation, college athletes being paid. What is your opinion on college athletes being paid? All right. So I've heard a lot of your other uh, podcasts, and most of your guests have been unanimous in saying that they believe that college players should be compensated right. and should be even given a salary in some cases. Uh, and I'm here to tell you I am against it. Mm. But before – I become the bad guy. Let me tell you why. Okay. So, and not, I'm only against salaries. So I believe if the university or the NCAA starts paying players, what you're going to end up doing is reducing opportunities for, for players to make it out of bad situations and get scholarships and take advantage of those opportunities because money doesn't just grow on trees. Money has to come from somewhere. So either what you're going to do is you're going to dramatically raise the price of tuition for people that are paying for school mm. in order to also pay the athletes, or what you're going to end up doing is you're going to downsize and you're going to say, we don't have the funds to have 115 guys on this football team anymore. We don't have the funds to fund 85 guys on this football team anymore. And then not only that, you're also going to have to take into consideration Title IX, mm. which means that the football team isn't going to be the only one being compensated. So is basketball. So is softball. So is volleyball. So is wrestling. So is track and field. So are all these other sports. Rifle is going to be, have to be compensated at the same amount that football is. Mm. So my opinion is you let capitalism do its job. Mm. And by doing this, what I mean is you remove restrictions that the NCAA has placed on these student athletes. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not really about a dollar bill. It's about a monopoly on the system. Mm -hmm. So what the NCAA needs to do in order to benefit their players is remove the monopolization of power among their players mm -hmm. and allow these players to make money off of endorsements and make money off of their likeness. Now, with that being said, players also get a small stipend, and this is just enough for them to pay their rent and get some food, really. Yeah. It's not really adequate enough to have a quality of life. Um, so what I really think we should do is those stipends, those monthly stipends, if we really wanted to make a difference, let's jack them up 25%. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but compared to what it is now, that's very, very reasonable. Mm -hmm. And then you also have a 2% um, minimum yearly increase to keep up with uh, inflation. So at every year, you're not losing spending power, right? Yeah. Um, you allow players to cash in on their likeness, and you also can give a percentage of ticket sales to the players. 
Yeah. So if you have a sold out game, that pot becomes higher. And it also will depend. Does the home team get that money? Does the visiting team get the money? Do both teams get the money? But I, I do believe that players should get a percentage of whatever people are paying to physically come see them perform. So that's more of a bonus, not necessarily a salary. But that's really what I believe is just removing the monopolization of power and allowing players to make money off of their likeness. No, and, and the whole thing with athletes being paid, right, the only thing I've contended truly is the fact that what I've always fundamentally and still disagree with is the idea that, first off, well, we give you a stipend or you get a scholarship, that's enough. Like, who, who are they to decide what is or is not enough, right? So, like you talked about, a player being able to benefit off of his own likeness. Just in that alone, I would be fine with that. But the fact of the matter is that's not what's happening. What's happening is, is if a guy even makes or takes a dollar, oh, your scholarship is revoked or you're ineligible. You know, see what they did to the young man, James Wiseman, last year at Memphis, you know, where Penny Hardaway helped his family move. Nope, that's against the rules. You're ineligible. Like stuff like that. I'm like, like, what are you doing? You know, that's where I have a problem with it. You know, so in terms of having a salary, not having a salary, you know, we don't have to agree on that fully, you know, and that doesn't have to be the way. That's a way, that's a method, right? But the idea of them, them meaning the athletes, whatever sport it is, not being able to get anything, but the colleges, because the university profits, the coaches profit, you know, everybody profits, but the people actually putting in the work, right? And I've always held the opinion that it's not an amateur opposition once money is involved. Right. When you look at youth sports, youth sports is amateur because, first off, the kids' pay, parents are paying for everything. Right. High school, even still, the kids' parents are paying for everything. And the coaches don't lose their jobs if they're like, it's not so dependent on winning and losing. You're a teacher first in high school, not a coach who happens to be a teacher, a teacher who happens to coach. So it's not the same thing. Right. If, you're, if your program is successful or not. And also, system meaning where a, a kid is um supposed to go that plays a part in success and failure of, of programs not your ability to be able to recruit players to come to your campus right so that's where because people are like well it's amateur sports and college i'm like no it's a business because colleges are making decisions business-wise to be able to bring players in to help their revenue, right, to help them profit. So why are the kids not being able to get a piece of the pie, so to speak, right? Whatever that looks like, whatever that system is, you know, there can be multiple ways to have it done. It, but what I do disagree with, and I will continue to disagree with, is this notion that is really just outdated where kids don't deserve to be paid or they shouldn't be paid just for the principle of just not paying them like it's, it's greed in my opinion to, is what it is honestly now that might you know that might sound a certain way but it is what it is you know in I, addition mm -hmm. there's so many more opportunities now than there are than there were even 10 years ago with the blowing up of social media and um commercial you know through the internet and through social media now a player can have you know 500,000 followers or a million followers and they're a freshman in college and you expect him not to tap into that ability to make money for himself, you know, by, by doing a spot or sponsoring a product. I absolutely think that that needs to prevail. And ultimately if you're playing better, those endorsements are going to be coming your way. So I think right. it's capitalism in that capacity is the answer. Yeah, I agree. But bottom line is we agree that, players should be able to profit in some manner. Now, what that wet looks like, we can disagree on. We can disagree on. You know, the system doesn't have to be done one way. There are multiple ways to skin a cat. Um, and, you know, the big takeaway is also just that the system, like everything else, needs to evolve, you know. Um, and I think it will evolve with time. It just, you know, requires people continuing to have these conversations to continue to bring like which is why i bring former athletes who played in college who actually played you know the game in that manner and they can come on and talk about it 
But closing out, my last question is, you know, with all the things we've talked about, your coaching career, your playing career, you know, your experiences just in football in general, what's your advice you give to the next generation of athletes and, you know, football players, basketball players, whatever the case may be? What's your last piece of wisdom you have for them? As a player, I'll say that I was never the biggest or the strongest or the fastest. I was counted out several times. People told me that I would never be able to achieve the things that I achieved. And never at any point did I not believe in myself. And I've had a lot of nights that were sleepless because I knew I had to get better. There were even times that, you know, I was like, I don't have the tools to compete yet. Mm. But I knew that they were on their way. So my first two years were rough and my last three years were fantastic in terms of my perception. Mm. And I would tell those players to never doubt in yourself and you got to keep working every day and you just got to outlast everybody else and make it to that finish line. Because if you make it there, you're going to have a lot of great experiences along the way. One other thing I'll say is sometimes players will say, you know, I don't know if I can make it at the D1 level. Um, I don't run a 4-240 or I don't bench press 300 pounds or I don't squat or power clean this amount. And the truth is, if you get the chance to play football at the next level, it's because you're you and you just need to be the best version of yourself possible to maximize your playing time and your playing abilities. So never give up and don't retreat. Be mentally strong and physically strong. That's what I have to say. Well said. Well said. Well, that's a wrap. Episode 12 for Inside Podcast. I would like to thank our guest, AC, for coming on today. Appreciate you, man. This has been a great episode. Appreciate being here. Hope to be on again. Maybe we can get Obi on at the same time. Bernard, your brother. That will be a banger. I've gotten in touch with him. We're going to make that happen for sure. All three of us at one time. All right. We'll catch this on YouTube, Spotify, all platforms, streaming podcasts. Thank y'all.